Okay, so uh, we have a special guest today, Bernardo Castrop, who's based out of the Netherlands. Um, on behalf of the uh, podcast, Silent Ego, the soul of the entrepreneur, and uh, basically life beyond the spreadsheet. So we're not going to be really talking about numbers too much today. Um, but Bernardo has got an impressive um, background. He's a philosopher and an author. Uh, he's got a PhD in philosophy and computer engineering. He's written a whole raft of books and uh, fundamentally co-founded a company many moons ago called Silicon Hive, which was subsequently sold to Intel. So we're in great company today. Uh, Bernardo is basically incredibly well read and we're going to touch on some very interesting subjects. So uh, hopefully we'll find it enlightening. I think that's the outcome we're looking for. Um, so I'll start with the end in mind with uh, Bernardo, which uh, is a question about the future of life as you uh, see it, feel it and sense it. Um, and with all those wonderful books that you've uh, written, um, a bit of an emphasis on decoding Jung's metaphysics, very interested in exploring that. Um, while materialism is baloney, because I think that's very relevant with uh, what's going on in the world. And can I talk about rationalist spirituality, which is, uh, which is fantastic subject matter to sort of really structure out our, I would say, high-level conversation if we use uh, um, meta-thinking as we go through this journey today. So welcome, Bernardo. Uh, pleased to see and hear you're fit and well. And... Um, it's a standard stock question. It's not a boring one, but where did it all begin? <laughs> well, first of all, thanks for having me, Paul. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, where did it all begin? Uh, at birth. <laughs> it's a good start. I was, I was born a philosopher and computer scientist. Uh, I have always had these affinities with me from as long as I can remember. Very good. So um, take us through the, the journey of, you know, uh, particularly the sort of the business life that you've um, been involved with. And, uh, you know, obviously, I know that when we spoke a couple of weeks ago now, we started talking about technology and how it was, past tense, was supposed to advance us many years ago in the way that we live today, um, etc. So just picking up on that thread, I'd be interested to sort of get your view on, you know, this technology revolution we're involved with right now and uh, all the associated ramifications around capitalism, spirituality and the general meaning of life. In layman's terms, it would be really good to hear your view. Okay, that's a, that's a very broad uh, question. Uh, um, I can do some extensive commentary on this. I'll try to be succinct. Um, I have had many lives. Um, one of them was uh, as an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. as you found out <laughs> in your research. We created some computer technology back in 2002 to 2005 or so that we created it. And we spin out, spun out a company called Silicon Hive that eventually was acquired uh, by Intel. Um, so that was one, one mentality, sort of one facet of me, one aspect of my inner life sort of expressing itself in the world, a box that I needed to check, and I checked that box. But in those times, like 20 years ago, um, I was much younger and I had less perspective than I have today. And then I had, as a kid, amazingly enough, because as a kid, in the very early 80s, when computers were 
becoming widespread, when we sort of gained confidence that future society would be a computer society, so much so that computers not only would be everywhere, they would become invisible, as they have. Computers are now invisible. They are everywhere, in your fridge, in your microwave oven, <laughs> in your phone, but we don't regard them as computers anymore. They, they are just a layer of abstraction that allows for certain applications uh, to become real. But back in those days, we thought computers will eliminate repetitive mechanical work. They will free up a lot of time for people to socialize, to spend time, quality time with one another, and to philosophize, because the human animal is the only uh, socio-philosophical animal. We are not only social, we ask the big questions, the fundamental questions. What is reality? What is the self? Uh, what is the point of this all? Where did that come from? Where am I going to? And so on. What is death? So we thought future society would be a leisure slash philosophical uh, society because all these mundane tasks would be done by computers. And that didn't happen. On the contrary, uh, things have become worse. We spend more time working uh, uh, and we require more efficiency out of our machines so we can work even more instead of working less. And then I think that has to do with the fact that society today is largely built on two notions that are both artificial and unsustainable, and that is uh, growth and, and competitiveness. Uh, maybe there was a time in the late 19th century when we could assume, based on the technology available at, at the time, that the earth was an infinite environment. So we could talk about growth, but now we know it's just a little ball. The, the earth is not growing. You cannot grow forever within it without wrecking uh, yourself. And the other one is competitive, competitiveness. Maybe there was a time in which competitive, competitiveness would sort of keep us sharp, would force us to draw the best out of ourselves. And there is an argument to be made about that. Um, but when it goes over the top, it becomes dysfunctional. And I think that's what you're seeing now. People working themselves to death to compete in an artificial game that is not part of nature. Um, and to achieve a fictitious goal that never comes. <laughs> yeah, it's an interesting one. I'm pleased you see where I'm in absolute violent agreement with you. So we see it. I mean, obviously, uh, we've trod sim similar paths. So in many senses... You know, I've had a lot of experience in, you know, supporting corporate growth, SME growth, um, et cetera, et cetera. And with the sister business, Angility.life, which is all about liberating the world from work, you know, the subject you're touching on is a very sensitive one right now um, with, you know, the, the, the power of technology, which I, you know, I, I, I call it we're in this sort of chapter of our existence where hopefully we are moving away from fear fight and competition uh, more aligned towards truth trust and collaboration uh, whether we make it or not it's another story but i think we've got the vote um you know it's what we uh not necessarily it's 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 not necessarily about what we do it's more about the way we think i always coin the phrase the currency of the 21st century is the way you think and it'll either flow with you or it'll flow against you. It's your choice. So picking up on that, uh, Bernardo, and in many respects, that kind of, you know, weaved back to our conversation with Andrew Holicek, who we, you know, we had the pleasure of coming on this podcast. I believe we're on this precipice of moving, hopefully, into a more uh, 
um, leisure-centric society, but in a more considered way. So you'll know this better than anybody, uh, given your um, professional background and your, uh, what I would call, your existence. Let's call it that. Um, you know, the reason you exist is for this big movement that's coming, which hopefully will lead us into what I term leisureization, where technology supports humanity, not the other way around. Um, so with that in mind, in a talking philosophical and looking at sort of some of your books as an example, Decoding Jung's Metaphysics, where does the ego and the archetypes and the likes play into this um, from your perspective? The archetypes are, are, are always playing everywhere. In, in every great movement of humanity, you have the collective archetypes. And in our personal lives, uh, the archetypes also manifest themselves uh, in, in our choices and our emotions and the course we give to our life. What is an archetype? An archetype is just a natural template uh, along which mind preferentially, preferentially flows. In other words, these are the harmonics of mind, the, the notes, the natural notes, the, the resonant frequencies uh, of mind. Um, and of course, being mental, they have certain qualities, certain mental themes to them. Uh, um, competitive, competitiveness is a characteristic of the hero archetype, uh, which has been always the, the most expressed archetype, uh, at least in recent human history, uh, uh, the idea that you will engage in a contest as a hero and you win it and get the princess <laughs> at the end. Um, and, and the hero archetype underlies a lot of capitalist activity. You also have um, another very fundamental archetype of the human mind, um, the trickster archetype. Uh, th th these are things that we, we should not feel ashamed of. They are us. These are just names, archetypes, heroes, and, 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 and tricksters. These are just names we give to our modus, to, to our modes of operation, modus operandi. Um, that, that is imbued in us by nature. It's what, it's what and who we are. There is nothing to be ashamed of. But we also happen to be metacognitive animals. Uh, that's what differentiates us from the rest of nature. We can think about our own thoughts. We can sort of step out of ourselves, out of our instinctual flow, and, and judge ourselves, pass judgment on our own thoughts, emotions, and actions, and look in the mirror and say to ourselves, well, I know you have this tendency, this disposition, but this is not all right if you take it so far. Uh, uh, we have that capability. We have the ability to pass moral judgment on ourselves, and that's that imbues us with a responsibility that we cannot escape. And evading that responsibility, that, that's the one thing to be ashamed of. Um, and that's the one thing that would allow us to bring the manifestation of archetypes into some form of sustainable balance. Uh, but it's very difficult to do. It re normally requires a, a psychological sophist sophistication and a degree of ability to introspect that... Um, I wouldn't say most people don't have. They have the innate quality, but they haven't developed. Why? Because they are so much at the mercy of the archetypes that they don't stop to think about what they're doing. That's a great um, lead up to 
you know, we're talking about the... So in some respects, capitalism in, in the way it's actually represented itself over the last, say, 50, 100 years, etc., has served as kind of okay. Um, it's got us to this point. Now, with obviously what's been going on over the last 24 months and probably previous decade as we build up to this point in our in, 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 in the world, the worldview and how we're kind of leading out from here, um, what do you see... Are the needs of change to live in a more harmonized global society? What are the things that you, you know, what's that checklist in your mind? If I could change these things, what would there be with that sort of, you know, moving from that capitalistic sort of value set? I call it life capitalism. As we move away from raw capitalism to life capitalism, where we're more about you know, leisureization, blending technology to support, you know, the greater good, all that sort of wonderful stuff. So, yeah, with that in mind, I mean, what are the key observations you're making, internalizations and senses of expression? I'm sure that there's more books coming and uh, can't wait to, to view them. But, uh, yeah, so coming back to that question. I think the easiest part, which is pretty difficult, uh, but the easiest part is that we have to organize ourselves according to a system that does not overemphasize competition and growth so much. Because today we are in a situation, even if you have an enlightened board in a corporation, they, they themselves um, have a supervisory board uh, and fiduciary duties. So even if you have an enlightened CEO who, who has seen through the game and knows better, um, he goes to jail if he doesn't pursue growth and competition to the maximum extent possible because he has a supervisory board and shareholders and shareholders are interested in return and returns only come when you grow. So changing the system, I think, is the easiest step, but mightily difficult to do. You, you have to have a system that not, not only rewards sustainable, aware behavior that is not crazily pursuing growth and competition at all costs. So that not only rewards that, but which doesn't throw people in jail if they don't partake in the madness. Uh, so that's condition number one. That, that without that, you know, you can have the most enlightened executive board in the world and their hands are tied. Um, now, more difficult and more important is an internal change. Uh, we are suffering from a psychic health epidemic, some of which we recognize, some, which, some of which we don't. We recognize that um, depression is rampant, that anxiety is rampant. We recognize that people are popping more psychoactive pills than mm -hmm. ever uh, before, even though these pills exist since the 50s. Um, but there is an aspect of it that is completely unrecognized. It's, and it's probably the most damaging part. Uh, it expresses itself in a number of different ways, one of which is we are in a culture in which plausibility is manufactured. We have lost contact with our innate sense of plausibility, what is plausible and what's completely implausible. We, we all have an intuitive sense of that because we are natural beings rooted in nature. So we have an intuitive sense for what sort of 
uh, is consistent with nature and, and what is not. That's our natural sense of plausibility. But we live in a culture in which we completely overwhelmed our natural sense of plausibility with a manufactured sense of plausibility that is enforced by the media, by, by academics, uh, uh, by the self-appointed spokespeople of science. Uh, and to give you an example, it has become culturally plausible in a complete, completely artificial way that you can build a silicon machine called a computer that will have a conscious inner life just to you, just like you and I have. Even though that thing doesn't metabolize, it's not carbon-based, it's silicon-based, uh, it's a simulation of human mental patterns. But of course, a simulation is not a phenomenon. That It's not the phenomenon that it simulates. Otherwise, uh, um, if I simulated kidney function on my computer, my computer would urinate on my desk. But it doesn't. Why? Because a simulation is not the phenomenon it simulates. But when it comes to consciousness and mind, we completely lost sight of this obvious implausibility of the notion of artificial consciousness. And this goes on and on. Um, materialism is an internally inconsistent metaphysics. The notion that the world out there, which it certainly exists, that there is a world out there, I'm not questioning that. But to say that the world out there is something other than mentality, even though all we ever become acquainted with is mental, uh, to say that it's not mental, it's something else, is a terrible proposition, both in according to logical and empirical grounds. It's self-contradictory, it lacks explanatory power, it faces all kinds of insoluble problems, one of which is the so-called hard problem of consciousness, and yet it is considered a plausible metaphysics, although it's obviously flawed. Uh, it, it, it's been contradicted left and right in foundations of physics, in neuroscience of consciousness, in analytic philosophy. So that's a, that's a more difficult thing to change, uh, Paul, that, that, to, to render human beings more introspectively aware of what they are doing in their own minds, of their, more aware of their hidden assumptions, uh, of, of the manufactured sense of plausibility that they have adopted and overwhelmed their natural sense of plausibility. I think that will only change when a new generation comes up. And I think the millennials may be that generation. Mm. Well, let's hope so. So let's sort of just wind back a little bit. I mean, we're talking about capitalism and, you know, public companies as an example, listed businesses, share price, stock markets, you know, the, the, the root of it all, really, the, which has took us hostage to subserve these numbers that nobody really wants, right? So that's that piece. And then, you know, so... Um, you know, and I call that to like money is creating weakness. It's not strengthening us. So this pursuit of money and power or money or power, I think it's now got to the point where it's power versus money. Money is in a material. It's all about power for some reason. And I think there is a word that I don't hear a lot in business from my perspective, and that is we have plenty or we have enough. It doesn't seem to come into the vocabulary um, because society from a corporate point of view, you know, if I look at the corporate exec, he's been paid to be positive for quite a long time. So he's lost himself in that mindset of, I have to be seen to be. And then weaving that into this kind of whole synthetic archetype, this false self. Um, and But I think we're on this, from what I'm picking up, there's a lot of people, and I'm speaking from experience from, a, from my Zengility business practice, 
um, at the moment where I'm meeting a lot of corporate execs saying, get me out of here. Um, I kind of have no meaning left in my life. I've got a, and these are people that sort of between the ages of 45 and 55 is a typical sort of example. So it's where they've started to realize that the ego is not serving them. And there's this thing in their chest that's beating, that's saying, I want to do something different. I want to do it in a different way. And there's three words that are coming out is patterns, purpose, meaning, and completion. And it's kind of like a census. And, you know, you and I are you know, obviously listening to, you know, the world as it sits at the minute and what it's looking to aspire to, the next realm of, can we call it capitalism? Um, I'm not a big fan of the term anymore. I think it's past its sell-by date. There's got to be something else that substitutes it that, that has meaning for sustainability. Um, so the other point you're making there, which I've picked up on, is basically, are we dying of ignorance? You know, you know because the, 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 we know what to do, right? Yeah, but you know, in biology, there is this system of behavior or a system for coordinating behavior across individuals that's called stigmergy right. it's what um, ants do uh, for instance <laughs> in which collective behavior emerges bottom up from cues provided by the behavior of other individuals so they all sort of fall in line with the collective behavior while in fact their individual behavior is what's setting the collective behavior um, it's called stigmergy it's um, it's not a conspiracy theory in the sense that there is no cabal at the top enforcing uh, the behavior. Uh, it's emergent behavior that arises from individual cues. So this happens, for instance, today in, in academia when it comes to the metaphysics of materialism or mainstream physicalism, which is a technical term. Um, a lot of academics who never thought about the problem or who are not convinced materialists or physicalists they fall in line with the stigmergy that tells them that if they behave in a certain way, in other words, adopting materialism, um, that they stand a higher chance of being promoted and publishing papers and not being ridiculed. Now, th there is no cabal that will punish them if they are not materialists. Uh, it's just this stigmergy, this bottom-up emergent set of rules about how to behave such that your behavior will be rewarded. And we are all slaves of it at the same time that we are all enforcing it. We are both the slaves and the enforcers uh, of this behavior. And, and that's what makes it so difficult to change because it's not only materialism, it's runaway capitalism that uh, arises from this form of bottom-up stigmergy because if you are a CEO and you have other colleagues, CEOs playing golf with you, um, and, and if you're a member of a board and, and you're meeting people that have similar jobs, uh, that's the value system. That's the set of rules that you sort of have to sponsor in order to fall in line with the emergent collective behavior and be appreciated as a member of that social group and be rewarded uh, uh, for what you do. And so even if you know better uh, it's very difficult to disentangle yourself from that network of stigmergy. And that's something we will have to learn uh, how to do because we, we, we are about to kill ourselves as a civilization. We are not going to kill the planet. Even if we ruin the planet, give it a million years and it's full of forests and animals again. We are not going to kill even the species. 
because there is always the African Bushmen, the Inuit, the, the Australian Aboriginal, who have the skills to survive even in the absence, absence of electricity, communications, uh, and piped water and all the things that uh, we no longer know how to live without. Uh, but we can ruin our civilization, and we are, we are very far along the line of ruin. Um, and this is a Titanic with a lot of inertia, and that inertia is the stigmergy. So how how do you escape that? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And it's it's an interesting point. I mean, some of my sort of metaphors and some of my language when I'm working um, in my pra- in my businesses and, and the way I practice is. You know, I'm working from the false self or that huge degree of status anxiety, um, approval. You know, I'm talking the classic corporate environment, which is nothing wrong with it. It served people well, but we are at a tipping point. There is the, as they, there's the, you know, the entrepreneur published a couple of weeks ago, you know, the great resignation is here. Um, you know, people don't want to be belong to those environments anymore. They used to call it culture. People are now starting to think about new ground. Where where can I seek, uh, you know, the new me? You know, it's that sort of... The, but So the mirror is arriving. People are starting to think and look at, you know, self I mean, obviously, there needs to be more of it. There needs to be a pandemic of it, if I've got to be honest with you, if you want to call it that. But, you know, just stepping back to consumerism and consumption, that big word for me, consumption, and, you know, materialism... I have that question now, who's consuming who here? Yeah, <laughs> I think, are we eating ourselves, right? Um, in, 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 a, in, a, in a raw sense. So, so there's that. But we go back a good few years, and you might be able to quote this better than I do. Remember Edward Bernays, the propaganda man, yeah? Um, you know, the, 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 the white goods guy, you know, the market, the, the, the guy that designed propaganda was paid by the American government a lot of money to to make that happen you know this is the consequences of all that sort of status and comparable and competition and you know the the fear um it, it's it's what we've been fueled on for such a long time your point's incredibly well made is how do we actually switch if that's the term um you know you hear these terms the great reset and all the rest of it and the reset for me means we've got to stop and then start again um, so how are we going to do that? You know, it's some really out big earthy questions there. And who's going to lead these initiatives if lead, you know, but comes back to your aunt's piece. Um, I really like that because somebody somewhere in the, in, with that primal sort of view, we've got to stop following each other and actually start to be more unique within ourselves and have more original expression, stop conforming to something that we innately know isn't right, but we are frightened to actually go in to find out, right? Um, I think that's, that's kind of like my, my view of it. But if you were to, and, you know, you're a very intelligent man, Bernardo, there's no two ways about it, and your philosophy is excellent, your outlook is amazing. What, what would you do if, if somebody gave you the mandate you know, the responsibility to say, right, we've got to fix the planet now, you know, in, 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 from your perspective, you know, so if we're talking about, for example, team selection, right, you can't do it on your own, right? Who would you pick to work with? 
Oh, that's a difficult question, Paul. Um, <laughs> look, history has taught us that uh, um, top-down change is seldom effective. Um, if you enforce change from the top, you would think that it worked, but once the enforcing mechanisms relax, everything goes back to how it was before. Um, so, so that's why the problem is so difficult. But what I would do is I would give... If I had the resources to do that, I would give a lot of mainstream media visibility to the brave souls that step out of the stigmatic mechanism, who, who have the character to say, no, I, I, I know better uh, and I would do things differently, even though my, my actions may, may be ostracized by my social environment. So you'd give a lot of media visibility to those people uh, in order to plant in the psyches of the rest of humanity the notion that that's a, a valid avenue as well. Uh, you set an example uh, by, by making those courageous <laughs> souls uh, that act on their knowledge uh, as, as much visibility as possible. So that's one. Another point is to understand that this psychic epidemic has the characteristics of an addiction. Um, it's literally an addiction, and therefore it's as hard to overcome as an addiction. Um, the human will, it historically has gone through a number of different phases, which you see reflected back in philosophy and psychology. So to give you con concrete examples, we started with Freud's will to pleasure. That's the Freudian view that everything we do, it's because we want to have sex. It's a very primordial uh, uh, um, will drive in the human species. After that, we, we developed the Nietzschean will to power, uh, the idea that uh, life is about controlling as much as you can do about yourself and others. It's the will to power, the will to control. We are in, in that stage as a civilization. We've gone beyond uh, the will to pleasure and we are now in the will to power. And you see that right. very clearly in the lives of some very rich, powerful people. You would think that, you know, if you have billions in the bank, uh, you would be, you know, swimming in a different ocean every week uh, and just enjoying your life and have 30 different sexual partners. Uh, and you, know, you would disappear from the game because you don't need to play the game anymore. But what we see is that... It, it's the contrary. People are more and more and deeper and deeper in the game. They are trying to make the next billion or they are trying to get to space before the other billionaire, uh, a week before, as the case might be. So it's a full-on uh, uh, will-to-power game right now. But is there something beyond that? Of course, we have Viktor Frankl's will-to-meaning, which is, which is the mature will. The mature will is the will to meaning. Well, some in the East would say the mature will is the will to nothing. But that's too far for the Western mind. It's not something we can relate to and will not be able to relate to that anytime soon in the Western mind. So let's stick to the will to power. The will to power is the elderly attitude to life. But what have we done? We have killed our elders metaphorically because we regard old people now as uh, dead weights for society, while proliterate cultures worldwide have always known that the elders are the, are the source of wisdom. 
they are the ones that are most connected to the ancestors. They are the ones that have the experience. They are the ones that know what's actually going on and know the traps we create for ourselves and fall into. But we've killed our elders. We have elevated adolescent values um, to the peak of the mountain. Um, even very powerful old people now, what do they do? They want, they want to have the 20-year-old girlfriend and do plastic surgery and all kinds of illegal uh, uh, treatments for sort of reversing their biological age. Um, this is happening, and there are conferences about this. Um, so we have elevated adolescent values to the peak while marrying ourselves blindly to the will to power um, and allowing ourselves to become fully addicted to that. So the pattern you see is that we are a adolescent civilization fully addicted to its adolescent value system, the will to power. So we have to be uh, treated from within, treated between quotes, from within, in a way that borrows some cues and guidelines for how people are treated for addiction. I don't see any other way to go about it. So we have to learn everything there is to learn about addiction uh, and try to map that, apply that, to a civilization-wide scope, uh, which is an immense challenge. That, that's one possibility. The other possibility is, look, people of my age, our age, we are all going to die in 30 years. Maybe we'll die in time, maybe not. For the next generation, which is clearly less addicted to the will to power, the millennium, millennials are less addicted to the will to power. Now, my generation, your generation, we grew up thinking that you know, what we need to do is to have two cars and a nice house and own stuff. This new generation, they don't even want to own a car. It's the Uber generation. They want to borrow stuff. They want to go through life light, <laughs> if you know what I mean, with little, little baggage. And that bids some hope. That's really, really interesting point. Um, so, you know, the hedonistic sort of place that we've managed to get ourselves to, is it fair to say that money right now is weakening us? You know, the direct association with money and power, power and money, um, which is this extreme hedonism, this, you know, we're over-consuming at levels that we need to, you know, we need to almost like reconfigure our minds. And, you know, the, the, the millennial generation, hopefully, yes, you're quite right, they're kind of maybe started in a slightly, you know, slightly dispositioned with economics and the likes, but right now are kind of, learning to do life or express life in a new way. And it's sort of almost like saying, I don't want to do what my parents did. I don't want to go through that. We don't need to. So they've got to, they're looking at life with a different lens. And that lens is a cleansing lens because you're quite right. You know, we're not going to be, uh, as, as we all are in our own individual ways, addicted to all sorts of different things that, you know, came off the back of, you know, post-war capitalism and how we were, we set out on the journey to rebuild and, you know, kind of have plenty. But nobody's actually stood up and said, enough's enough. Yeah, on a global stage and said, we have enough, we have plenty. And the stimulus of that is the stock markets, because it's got to yield growth consistently. And I have a view about, you know, I do, uh, you know, slate changing tack. I do quite a few business turnarounds and I have done over the last number of years professionally. And I always say stabilize for considered growth. 
don't go for exponential growth because it can ruin a distressed environment very, very quickly and you lose the essence of, of what you're about. And we've all seen that in different guises, you know, the early stage startup and, you know, that entrepreneurial spirit that got you there. Then you get to that capital point where you create a capital exit, you sell it on to a, another company and um, that's great. You know, and it, it you know, I, I'm dealing with a number of individuals where that is their mission. But when I actually step out of that and really look at it, if you love your business and you practice the art of business in a new way, so coming back to the new business professional that will exist in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, why do I need to sell what I love doing? Yeah? Why don't I just keep it going and enjoy it like the great artisan? Yeah? I make amazing... I don't know, whatever that is, and, and look at it from a different dynamic. But there seems to be this, like you say, this, this force-fed, hedonistic, you, you are nobody, goes back to approval, until you have made it like that. Made what? You know? <laughs> Does this make sense to you, Bernardo? A complete sense. This, this is a perfect diagnosis of, of what's going on. Look, we... We... we don't keep our eyes on the ball. We replace reality with an inner conceptual narrative that deceives us. So we are deceiving ourselves. What we all want, ultimately, if we are really honest to ourselves, what we all want is well-being. That's what we want. We want to be well. We want to feel well. Um, but we then perform a number of translation steps conceptually in our minds uh, that are supposed to tell us what we need in order to have well-being. And that's where it goes wrong. Uh, mm -hmm. The Nietzschean will to power is the idea that to be well, I need to be in control. Now, we, people don't question that. So they go after control. And in the process of going after control, they feel bad. Because that's not the point. The point is to feel well. But we replace this with a proxy, with a conceptual proxy that deceives us left and right. You use the word um, hedonistic. Uh, I think even, I think we are more lost than that. <laughs> because you see, if hedonism were the name of the game, if we thought that our well-being can be purchased through a hedonistic lifestyle, people would stop after the first billion or maybe after the first 100 million or the 10 million, depends on the person. For me, 1 million would be the point where I would stop. Um, um, and I stopped. Um, uh, because, you know, after, let's take 1 billion. After the first billion, whatever else you have, you cannot possibly uh, uh, use for extra hedonism. Uh, you cannot live in 50 different houses at the same time. You cannot, uh, have, you cannot use 10 different yachts all the time. You know what I mean? You, can, you just don't have enough lifetime to be able to use more than that billion or that hundred million if hedonism were the name of the game. So why do people want more? It's because it's power. Because a uh, hundred billion gives you more power than one billion. With a hundred billion, you have a degree of power that should be given only to legitimate governments. But uh, now you are, as a non-elected person, uh, wielding more power 
than dozens of elected governments around the world because you have over 100 billion. And sometimes that works because of the character involved. Arguably, that works in a Bill Gates. Look at what he's doing. Um, I know now a lot of your listeners will say, oh, Bernard, you're so naive because most of his money he's not putting in charity. And you may have a point, but you, you see what I mean. That may work, but it may also not work in a terrible way. And, and the question is, do we want that as a society? Do we want to throw those dice? Because after a certain threshold, it's no longer about enjoying the fruits of your work or the value you produced from mankind. After a certain point, it's about accumulating control. And we are bloody addicted to control uh, as an adolescent uh, civilization. We are like, we are no longer kids because kids are hedonistic. Uh, uh, we are like very young adults in, in the self-affirmation phase, trying to self-affirm their role in their social circle. And the way to do that is to accumulate power. So our entire civilization is driven by this uh, um, immature, uh, adolescent, uh, young adult attitude. Everything uh, uh, is, is governed by this. <laughs> That's a problem. It's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? I, and I think that it is at a tipping point. I really do feel it, it needs to be at a tipping point. So I'm not going to sort of start technically start plagiarizing sort of social media or anything, but there is a lot of social nonsense out there. But equally, I think there is a rise now, hopefully, of social sense. And you use the term wisdom back in our conversation a few minutes ago that needs to be more practical wisdom administered in life as the fundamentals, particularly to the next generation. Um, and the other piece for me would be things like the the Instagram kind of world and this sort of, like you say, sort of the younger generations getting addicted to Instagram and their value being placed on how they physically appear on Instagram. Um, so some serious work to be done there. Um, and... You know, the, the whole thing needs to be readministered psychologically um, with it's almost, you know, computing now and social uh, business strategies um, or social media strategies, should I say, need to come with a health warning. Um, yeah, to, to actually really give people a sort of a heads up that this could destroy your life. Yeah, because it is. And that's the reality of it. But, you know, you, you say that everybody, this generation, this what I call the hangover of the 20th century is in office at the moment and leading this dance to nowhere until the next realm of influence, let's call it that, get into office, so to speak, to take us on that journey. And I come back to this media point because the media is running riot with it at the minute. We all know what's going on and how that gets fueled, you know, the conspiracies and the, the, the truth. Is it really... Are we reading something today that's factually correct or is it just baloney? Yeah. Uh, so there's that. But coming back to how I would fix the world and, you know, coming on to our kind of final few minutes of our conversation, Bernard, and I've got to be honest with you, I could speak for three weeks on this because we haven't touched on even a third of what we what I would love to have talked about. And I'm sure there will be another conversation at some point. The power of music. Right. So for me. How can I influence generations around me and with me? I think that it's the call of the, uh, the, the great musicians now to start writing material 
that gets into our subconscious and starts to sort of get us to all start thinking. Let's start with some new thinking about how we can uncouple from this runaway train of capitalistic consumption to the point of no return and change track. And I think music, I spoke to my business partner in Zengility uh, about a year or so ago when we had the pandemic um, live and kicking uh, heavy in, uh, in the UK. And I said, you know, to stop street crime, we need to play more music in the streets, put people in a more soothing sort of mindset. I know that sounds a little bit out there, but coming back to metaphysics, the vibration of life, we need a new, as you probably is going to explain it in a much healthier way than I can, we need a, a, a new level of consciousness, a new vibration in the world where we're actually moving away from this and almost like becoming outside in and saying we've, we should leave the earth as it sits today without physically leaving, but mentally leaving and then reapply and come back again and have another go at it, you know? Uh, new rules, I think, that's what I would call it. Anyway, I'm, I'm being out there to make a point, but it, 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 we're in interesting times, Bernardo. We're in interesting times. Do you see, do you see the, the light getting in the crack? Yes, <clears throat> but it's also what I fear because life and nature have a way of maintaining their homeostasis, maintaining their equilibrium, their balance. Um, right. So a cure always comes. The problem is that we will not like the cure um, because we never do. So even in individual lives, life always has a way of setting you straight. So if you are drunk with power, indulging your addiction to the will to power, um, life comes and pulls the rug from under your feet and shows you, look, not only are you not in control right now, you have never been in control. But we don't like that because that could be a terminal illness. That's life's way of telling you, you think you're in control? You think that uh, you know, by, by doing what you do, you've eliminated every threat? Let me show you something. Let me show you a thing or two. So we never like the cure because it's a terminal illness. It's a divorce. It's the loss of a job. Uh, it, it's stuff that we don't want. It's stuff that makes us suffer tremendously. But life has this way. It has this way of uh, sobering you up from your arrogance, from your will to power, from your hedonism, from your uh, egocentric attitude. Um, now, the same thing may very well happen at a civilization level, not because there is a superior being passing judgment and watching and moving the pieces on the board to teach us a lesson, but because that's how nature works. Nature will seek some form of homeostatic balance. Um, so, and it uses its own natural mechanisms, not in a premeditated way, but in a spontaneous way. Suddenly a virus pops up that stops worldwide travel. Was that some thought through idea from a god to put to correct our ways i don't think so i think this is a spontaneous emergent thing that happens in nature and because our civilization has been uh, abusing travel uh, to unbelievable extents 
what happens is that when a new virus pops, which it always does every now and then, it spreads around the world in a month. <laughs> so that's homeostatic balance uh, for you. But we, we don't like it. We want to get away with our uh, uh, adolescent behavior, with our love of innocence in a bad way, innocence in a bad way. We want to get away with it forever and continue to indulge our addictions forever. So I'm positive in the sense that I say this will come to an end because it's a natural law that things that are unsustainable don't sustain. (laughs) So on that basis, uh, uh, you know, Bernardo, I'm, I'm backing nature, right? Well, uh, we are natural beings, but because we have this cognitive ability, we have the ability to step out of instinct and, and think about our thoughts, think about our, our actions, as opposed to being in that, that sort of blind flow of instinct, which Schopenhauer called the blind will. Uh, we, because we have that ability, uh, that very ability, although positive, is what takes us out of the natural flow of instinct in nature. It takes us out of automatic homeostasis. Mm. Interesting. So there's a lot to do. Um, Bernardo, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you on this. Um, I think the under, as I say, the underfeeling I have about this is it, 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 it's interesting. Ben and I were just chatting, my business partner in Zengility, um, just before this podcast. And I said, what came first, the mind or the heart? Well, certainly the heart in the sense of the emotional mind. But are, we, but are we listening to it? Oh, absolutely not. We completely divorced ourselves from it. Not only that, we created a value system that tells us that the heart is not reliable. I have a friend and, and you know, the, the founder of Essential Foundation, Fred Matzer, Matzer who says, uh, a action guided by thought and not filtered by the heart is a, yeah, how do I translate this? It's a loose cannon. It's an unguided missile. Um, but when you speak of the heart, of course, we mean a mental thing, a, a part of mind that's much more connected to the roots of nature, to the roots of instinct, than our conceptual reasoning. Conceptual reasoning is a very recent invention. Uh, arguably, it began with the Greeks. I, I would even say it began with Aristotle, Aristotelian logic, the rules of logic that we take for granted today. It's two and a half thousand years old in a species that is 200,000 years old, uh, in a planet that has harbored life for 3.5 or 4 billion years. In other words, it, it happened yesterday <laughs> or perhaps last hour. Uh, it's extremely recent, but we live in a value system that says it's the only reliable thing. And then we amputate all of our other psychic functions. We amputate feeling, we amputate intuition, uh, uh, we amputate everything else and we elevate conceptual thinking, purely abstract conceptual thinking, to the, to the position of king. Uh, conceptual thinking is a very good server, but it's a terrible king. It's a terrible lord because it's what stands to take us the furthest out of homeostatic balance. Very, very interesting. And I, I talked last week as we, 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 we kind of move on to another sort of small chapter of thinking here. Um, I am helping a number of senior executives come and arrive at a decision right now to move away from corporate life and run a portfolio lifestyle business, which is giving them more choice, money, time, more leisureization in their professional careers. And the wrestle I have is 
being able to um, anesthetize the ego and get them to listen to their heart, okay? Because they turn up for a wonderful conversation, I want to do this. But the ego, the cast iron ego, is overriding what I call heartfelt decisions. And where we've been incredibly successful is when we've managed to influence through thought, listen to your heart, okay? So is that the secret to go forward on a massive scale that we have to become more sense-like? We have to, in, you know, be, be sensing how we really feel and acting on it before the ego takes us hostage again for the next round of what might not come, i.e. the end of civilization, comes back to your point. So when somebody says to me, heart and mind, it, that's the secret, isn't it? Listen to your heart and then filter it both ways, logically, to make the right slash emotional stroke logical decision to move forward. But that then lends itself to sense. But when we're in this high-paced, frazzled economy, using that word, um, you haven't got time to stand back and think and really tune in. So maybe, maybe the pandemic was sent from a greater source to say, we've got to level these guys out. And maybe, dare I say it, lockdown might not have been for everybody, but for those that have prospered from lockdown, they've started to listen to themselves, right? There, there is an, a notion in, in psychology, uh, it's well established, it's not polemical, it's called fluid compensation. And the idea there is that uh, deep within what we all need is meaning, not power, not uh, hedonism, it's meaning. And, and even though we don't recognize that conceptually, uh, our emotional inner life is guided by that, is modulated by that. But when you fail to find meaning, you will fluid compensate. You will try to cover that hole, to, to, to cover that gap. It, it's usually felt as a hole here in the chest, like an empty space uh, in the chest that makes you want to crimp up and roll up in a fetal position and shrink away from life. Um, if we don't fill it in with the thing that it yearns for, which is meaning, and meaning is heart-centric. Meaning is felt, it's not thought. Meaning is not the result of a logical chain of reasoning. Meaning is something that, if it's in front of you, you recognize it. It's not derived from thinking, it's recognized by acquaintance. Uh, if we fail to make acquaintance with that, we will somehow fluid compensate and try to cover that hole in some other way. And, and that's the source of addiction. Addiction is when you fail to fulfill your deepest desire in the natural way. So you try to do that in an unnatural way to get away from that tremendous feeling of emptiness uh, that is always there in us, but we do everything to distract ourselves from. That's what addiction does. It's a sort of a, an artificial replacement for that done through, meaning, through, through fluid compensation. Um, and if you are in the throes of that distraction, in the throes of that desperate effort to tell you an unnatural story, to tell yourself an unnatural story about what needs to happen to eliminate that emptiness, uh, it is impossible for you to recognize what is actually going on. Because you're too much in the throes of that addictive despair 
to to find a way to close that gap. And we do that through the will to pleasure and the will to power, most of all, or simply through numbing, which is very big in society today. Uh, look at what uh, cinema has become. Cinema has become the number the number two numbing industry in the world today. Number one is uh, 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 the drug industry, the, the, the pharma. Uh, you go to a movie now, there is no meaning anymore. There is no character building. There is no life story. It's all action, noise, high speed, uh, special effects. It's like it, it numbs you because it's, it, and it's becoming stronger and stronger and stronger because that's the addiction. An addiction is defined by something that you use and next time you need to use more of it to have the same effect. And next time after that, yet more in order to have the same effect. You see that pattern everywhere. <laughs> it's more and more and more and more, more power, more money, more action, more drugs. Uh, and yeah, we will never see the real root of the problem, which is we have a hole in our chest and that hole can only be truly fulfilled in a natural way. And that's the heart. So with that in mind, Bernardo, I'm going to draw our podcast to a cl close. It's absolutely amazing, this conversation. Um, it's at such a level, I think, it'll resonate with a lot of our listeners and viewers around becoming more heart-centric. I think the new boardroom now is home is where the heart is, and we call it kitchen talk. There's a lot of board meetings going on in the kitchen these <laughs> days. So with that message in mind, um, I, we touched on God so I'll say this in, in relation to God. There's an old saying in the world, whoever's out there making the plan, God laughs. All right. So nature will win if there is a win. Yeah. Or we will find balance at the end. So my uh, my parting statement has been an absolute pleasure and delight, Bernardo, to talk on this subject. Um, I think there's lots of juice points and there is so much more we could express and uh you know move forward with for, for our listeners and viewers on on books um is there anything that you could recommend um that uh our listeners and viewers uh read uh, uh, to help them on their journey from from your material over the years I normally write uh, over metaphysics, and today we didn't talk much directly about metaphysics, but about the implications of it. So we talked more about psychology and sociology. Uh, so in that vein, um, I would read some of Jung, maybe Jung's uh, biography, um, uh, Memory, Dreams, Reflections. Viktor Frankl's uh, book, um, I forgot the name of the book, his book about the Holocaust, Man, man search, search in me, of meaning. Man in search of meaning. Yeah. 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 That's a beautiful one as well. Um, but, you know, beyond reading, reading can also be a distraction. It can draw, draw us away from ourselves. Beyond reading, I think uh, introspection is, is the one commodity that uh, we mostly lack today. It's honesty to ourselves. It's less out there and more in here. Uh, and if we did more of that, I think um, we would stand a better chance to salvage this civilization. I completely agree. So my message is let's go in to come back out. And that's our parting message. But on that subject, I'm going to say next time, Bernardo, we're going to talk about metaphysics. Sure. And that's a whole new world, literally which is fantastic. So with that in mind, um, let's tune in in the future, Bernardo. It's been a pleasure. Um, I look forward to sort of communicating with you um, again very, very soon. 
But once again, thank you so much. Been so insightful, and you're you know you're just this oracle of intelligence, which which I love, <laughs> and very real, and very matter of fact, which is which is fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Paul. It's been a pleasure.